Today is April 23rd, 2019. Uh, this is Peter Webb speaking, and I'm here at Sid Hall's house in Brookline uh, recording an interview which he's kindly consented uh, to participate in. Uh, I'd like to start off uh, talking about uh, the uh, early days of Sid Hall. Uh, so, Sid, where I should always start is, what, when were you born? Uh, September 11th, 1951. Where were you born? I was actually born in Hanover, New Hampshire. Uh, my uncle was a doctor up at Mary Hitchcock in Hanover. Uh, he delivered a lot of us kids. Um, when then did you come to Brookline? Well, I grew up in Brookline, so my parents came to Brookline in, uh, I think the 19, well, uh, probably late 1940s, and then, uh, so uh, we already lived here when I was born. Your, your dad was from where? He grew up in Concord, New Hampshire. I knew that. His, his dad was kind of a businessman, uh, the mayor of Concord for a little while, and uh, he has deep roots in Concord. What was his dad's name? His father's name was Lee Spalding Hall. Of course, your dad was Sidney... Sidney Levitt Hall. Levitt Hall. And I'm Sidney Levitt Hall, Jr. And where'd your mom come from? She grew up in New York City in a kind of a fancy brownstone, beautiful house with kind of in privilege. Her father was the dean of engineering at Columbia, and she grew up in high society. Where'd she go from? Wasn't she born in, in, in the East? She was actually born in Koblenz, Germany, because her father was a... Uh, had a high position in the Navy over there, and he just happened to be stationed there when she was born. So she's not German, but she was born over there. What can you br briefly tell us about your mom's family's uh, history in Brookline? Well, she was related to Florence Hobart Parent. So the big house we grew up in down the bottom of Old Milford Road at uh, 18 Old Melford Road now, was the Hobart house where Florence grew up and a uh, big family. And they had a blacksmith shop across the street, in the old, what became the Stonehouse Press building. And uh, she, uh, my mother used to come here summers to visit and Graham was really Graham Perrin, who was Florence Hobart, same person. When when she was a kid, she was Florence Hobart. She worked for as a secretary in the Unitarian Universalist Church in Brookline, Bass, at a place called the uh, Franklin Square House, which this George Hobart Perrin had founded and he was a uh, he was quite a well-known minister all over New England gave inspirational sermons and so when Florence Hobart Perrin uh, 
after she'd been a secretary for a while to him, she married him. And, and then she became Florence Perrin. And uh, uh, so she was my mother's step-grandmother. Was she the first family member in this town? Florence? You, you were the first uh, predecessor of your mom? Uh, yeah. What brought uh, Florence and Mr. Perrin to town? Well, Florence was born in the big house down where I grew up. So that was, she grew up as a Hobart. And the Hobarts were an old family in Brookline. So, uh, so we're related to the Hobarts, actually. So the Hobart line goes back. Yeah, you can read all about the Hobarts in the Parker history. They uh, were an interesting family. A lot of them are musicians. Uh, they uh, and David Hobart, I believe, is the one who had the blacksmith shop down here, at the bottom of the hill, when the old forges are still in there. Do you so our roots go back into Brookline that way. Gotcha. Uh, but at some point, Florence and her husband came back to Brookline. What well, time? let's see. I don't know that he lived here very much. She moved to Brookline Bass to be with him for a while. They ran the Franklin Square House. It was one of the first places in the country that was a respectable place for young working women to live. That was the whole purpose of it, that young women who wanted to work in Boston could have a respectable existence in this Franklin Square house. And uh, so she worked with him many years down there. And then when he died, she, it seems like most of their money was left to good works and to the Franklin Square house and the church. She started a religious gift shop here in Brookline. And that was set up in the back of the big house and also in the what became the Stonehouse Press building down here. And she made all kinds of uh, religious knickknacks, wooden crosses, and uh, this and that. And she was quite the businesswoman, so she was into her 90s. She lived to be almost 100. But in her 90s, she was quite the businesswoman. My mother used to go to Boston with her to pick up supplies and stuff. And she knew, everybody knew her and loved her in Boston. They would give her the royal treatment whenever she came down. And uh, one of the interesting things she did was she hired a guy off the streets of Boston who was an alcoholic. And she put him to work making jigsaw puzzles. So part of the religious gift shop business was renting out these homemade jigsaw puzzles. And we still have uh, maybe 50 of them. And they're just great puzzles. They're on thick wood with neat pictures. And the guy became an artist at uh, cutting really intricate shapes of animals and people. And, uh, and they're tough puzzles to put together. We still do them all the time. So she, she would rent these puzzles out from her gift shop. And my mother, when she was a little girl, would one of her jobs was to take the puzzles all back apart again and put them back into the gift shop for the next customer. 
Because this guy worked for years for for my for grandparent, and eventually the story goes that he hung himself. So he may not have been happy. When did your parents come to Brooklyn? Well, that's what I was trying to remember, but it would have been in the forties sometime. Just Why after they... my oldest brother Lee was born. Uh, well, they came here because they bought the yeah the big house. The big house became available, and uh, that my father started Hall Manufacturing Company in 1951, the same year I was born. And that was originally located in again in that old blacksmith shop that became Stonehouse Press. What did the Hall Manufacturing do? Oh, so he was a, a mechanical engineer. He went to MIT. He was very uh, inventive. He invented all kinds of neat things. And uh, he invented. He worked for a while in Manchester, first New York City, then Manchester, New Hampshire, in the dry cleaning industry, which is the industry that you know, you know what the dry cleaning industry is, but. And about that time, he invented the steam air machines that were used to press clothes out in the dry cleaners. And then he uh, designed the covers that went on these machines. And so Hall Manufacturing Company, the initial business was stitching these steam air covers. And they were one of the few places in the States that did it. So they... They sold the, the steam air covers all over the country. Where in town did Hall Manufacturing operate? So it started at the old blacksmith shop down here, which was across the street from our house. And uh, it had about, uh, I don't know, probably four or five stitchers at first. And then it moved from there down to over the village store. So we had the top two floors above the village store. So it was actually Hall store downstairs and Hall manufacturing upstairs, but the two families were not related to each other. But we used to go down the back stairs into the store and get, we had a good relationship with the store people. We could get snacks and stuff and take them back upstairs. At some point it moved out of the top. Yeah, floor. so then eventually it moved up to the location. So most people would probably remember it being up on corner Route 13 at 130, where the uh, pellet stove place is now. That was the old woolen mills that Prescott Kroll had uh, built up there. And so when Hobby the Factory moved in, it was a lot of old wool to clean out of those buildings. And then uh, my parents put an addition between the two buildings, and that became the retail store, Hall Manufacturing, where they branched out into many other things besides the steam air covers. And in the end, they kind of were known mostly for the tote bags. And so they had the retail store there, right in, in Brookline. People came from pretty far away to go there. Your folks had a lot of employees. Do you have any idea? 
Well, I think they never had probably more than about 20, 25 at the most. But the employees were extremely loyal. So some of the, uh, the women that started working with home manufacturing in, in, at the very beginning stayed all the way to the end. So that's like about 50 years. Do any names they come stayed. to mind? Yeah. Uh, Dot Hale, Dorothy Hale was with the business for years. Uh, Louise Marshall, Morris Marshall's mother, was there for years. Priscilla Searles and uh, uh, also uh, Shirley, uh, oh gosh, why can't I think of Shirley's last name? They were like our friends growing up. We used to really hang around the, the stitching room and, and I, uh, I knew these people from when I could walk until they sold the business. Priscilla, uh, I mean, uh, Shirley Wright. Shirley Wright, yeah. So, and then um, there were some others who stayed a long time and others who came and went. So it employed quite a few Brookliners over the years. Miriam was part of this workforce? Miriam Jepson was the uh, forewoman for many years, and mostly back when the, the business was down over the store. Oh, and another one was Maud Lumen, L-U-M-A-N. She was with it for many years. She used to come to work when she was feeling a little sick. She'd come to work with a clove of garlic hanging around her neck. And she was a tough old coot who grew up in Nova Scotia, but she was a tough lady because she stayed with the business into her 80s or so. Uh, give us a rundown on your siblings. Well, my oldest brother, so I've, I've got four older brothers. I mean, three older brothers, myself and then my younger sister. Lee, Tom, and Ted, me, and Mary. Lee's a doctor who lives in California now. He was uh, very active in Brookline and the Youth Fellowship and all of that stuff back when he, he was young. Tom is a musician, a musicologist. And Ted is a, also a doctor. And, and there's me and then Mary uh, was six years younger. And when we finally had a girl in the family, Graham Perrin that I was talking about, had the church bells run to, to celebrate. Uh, and Mary uh, became a, a kind of a uh, environmentalist, um, actually a wildlife ecologist, I guess. I don't know what you'd call her. Who owns that house now? So which house? The, the big house. The big house. My mother sold that to uh, Mary's oldest son, Archer. And his name is, Mary's married name was Bachelor. So Archer and Kimberly Bachelor own the house now. And they've got six kids. <laughs> That's impressive. Tell me about this house, Sid. This house was built in the 1940s by a lawyer from Boston as a summer camp and the house we're talking about is the house we always call it the house on the hill right across the street from 
the big white house where I grew up and up on top of the hill. And when I was a kid, there were apple and peach orchards all along this hillside. My mother said they were some of the best peach orchards in New Hampshire because the hillside exposure to the breezes was just right. And um, so over the years, my parents rented this house out and it was mainly a summer cottage. But then when I, after I went to college and after I came back from Europe, I had the inspiration to get this place from my parents and turn it into a year round house. And I've been here ever since. Tell us about uh, your career. Well, so I, uh, I have always had ambitions as a writer and uh, from a young age I was interested in writing and after I went to uh, Reed College with a degree in Greek and Latin classics which is pretty much useless in the real world unless you go into academia I I hold up here in this house for a little while and I did some uh, I worked for hall manufacturing during that time for a while, and I did odd, th odd things, you could say. And <laughs> not just odd jobs, but probably odd things. <laughs> um, and uh, I slowly got into uh, more and more into the writing and editing. And then... Uh, we bought, uh, Hall Manufacturing helped me to buy Carol Burgess's old printing business, which is the, the, uh, all that printing equipment was used to print the Brookline News, the first really true Brookline newspaper. And, uh, I printed up the catalogs, the, the mail order catalogs for Hall Manufacturing and and then I slowly turned that into a commercial printing business of my own. And I bought a new, pr bigger press and much more equipment. And I ran what was called Stonehouse Press in the same old brown shingled blacksmith shop building, which is at the bottom of my hill here. And uh, I think I ran that for about 10 years. And I got... Um, more and more into typesetting and uh, I, pu I published our place, the conservation newspaper out of Stonehouse Press because at the same time I got very involved in the conservation commission. And I think we started our place in like 1985 and that ran until 1994, almost 10 years. And that was a newspaper that we used to promote conservation purposes, but we did much more. We tried to provide historical context for things in Brookline. It had lots of pictures and fun articles and um, kind of with the philosophy that if, if we helped show Brookliners how great their town is, just drew attention to the good things, they would naturally want to preserve it and so it was not like hitting people over the head with 
conservation issues or whoops lights just went off but not the oh he must be out of here working you probably hit the switch um, so anyway i ran the printing business in the same time i was on the conservation commission very involved with that my kids were born about same time as I started that and and um, so I did that while they were growing up and then I sold my printing business I think in 1987 to a guy that worked for me and I concentrated more and more on uh, typesetting book design I had I had worked while I was running Stonehouse Press I had worked a lot with Puritan Press over in Collis and they they print a lot of books for Harvard and BU and Boston educational institutions and I I learned all about the fine art of book design uh, during that period and then I kind of along with the evolution of desktop publishing I evolved into uh, doing a lot of design and typesetting work so when i was running my printing business it was a big couple of big old offset presses the vertical camera the plate maker the station for stripping up negatives it was all the old-fashioned stuff by the time i closed my business or a few couple of years later that was all obsolete i had to take most of it off to the dump except the presses themselves i have a great old giant paper cutter that I'm giving to the New Hampshire Institute of Art in Manchester. But other than that, everything was obsolete because the printing technology changed completely. And desktop publishing came in and I, uh, so I kind of transitioned into that. And I was very interested in the typography and I got part of the interest at Reed College, where there was a famous guy named Lloyd Reynolds, who was actually a calligrapher, but he was so much more than that. And he was the most famous professor they had out there. People flocked to his classes. He was a philosopher, a historian, totally interesting guy. And he, a few years before I went to Reed, Steve Jobs was there. And this Lloyd Reynolds totally inspired Steve Jobs. And it's why Steve Jobs took his computer business in the direction of uh, carrying on the tradition of being able to create beautiful looking books and graphics and so on. That was a major inspiration for Steve Jobs. And so Steve Jobs was inventing all this great software and programs at the same time I was kind of getting into doing it more and more so i took full advantage of that whole computer revolution and, and eventually got into using the very sophisticated software which developed after a while that lets people typeset books you know like as a fine art more than just a kind of computerized business thing so, uh, so that was all very interesting for me
What is Hobblebush? Oh, so then that evolved into Hobblebush Books, my publishing business. So I sort of put together my interest as a writer and an editor and a printer and typographer. And that evolved into Hobblebush Books. And and then we we spun off from Hobblebush Books, Hobblebush Design. So Hobblebush Books uh, is still in existence. So the woman that used to be my marketing director bought the business from me, and she still runs it up in Concord. Uh, Kirsty Walker is her name. But anyway, uh, Hobblebush Books published a lot of literary titles and poetry because that's something I'm very interested in, but also books about New England regional books, is the, our most popular books were about Mount Washington. And um, then we spun off Hobblebush Design, which is more of a business-to-business -business enterprise to design and make books for other publishers all around the country. So I continued to make books for Harvard Medical School and the Harvard Music Department and places like that, but then other smaller publishers all over the country so they would just come to us with a book a manuscript and we would do whatever they needed to turn it into a book a finished printed book so uh that was the uh that the two businesses complemented each other because as a hobblebush books was a traditional publisher that paid for paid everything and paid the author's royalties and a lot of literary books is pretty tough to make a to make your money back even but the Hobblebush design business on the side allowed was uh, was the money maker so we could do both businesses together and continue to publish really interesting worthwhile books in the Hobblebush books part the Hobblebush design uh, business probably designed and just hundreds and hundreds of books for publishers all over the country. And we took a lot of pride in making really beautiful customized books, not cookie cutter books that all look the same, but uh, yeah, we took a lot of pride in each and every book that we made. Uh, tell us about your poetry. Well, so I've been writing poetry for years and years, most of it bad at first, which is not uncommon, for, except with a few poets, and uh, I started getting it published in literary magazines and journals and stuff like that, and, uh, and then I uh, had a few books of my own published, and it's uh, uh, an ongoing interest of mine and I still write uh, and I've been published quite a bit in different venues. Uh, that interest in poetry also led in to Hobblebush Books starting what was called the Hobblebush Granite State Poetry Series and we published a lot of other great New Hampshire poets. So uh, I've been pretty keyed into the whole poetry scene in New Hampshire for many years. I'm sure your work has evolved over time, but if you were a reviewer who was reviewing the Sid Hawk collection of poetry, what would you say? 
What, what is this poetry? I would say it got a lot more sophisticated as time went on. How so? And, well, just, uh, well, I mean, at the beginning it was pretty amateurish. And, uh, but I always, I took a lot of pride in just doing it my own way, stubbornly. So I made all the mistakes that you can make, but I made them and fixed them myself, hopefully. And um, so I I wasn't very traditional in that way that I didn't study a lot with other people. I did. I went to bread loaf and, and worked with other people off and on, but mostly I was kind of self-made in that department. Uh, I write a lot about... Uh, the New Hampshire landscape, the New England landscape, and nature. Uh, but it's all very like poetry. It's never really about what it's about. <laughs> but it is about it, too. So, so a poem about a blueberry bush is about the blueberry bush, but it's also about lots of other things. some point in time, the uh, Brookline History Committee roped you into their project. Tell us about that. Well, Eric D. Virgilio came to me and he said, would I be willing to come down to a History Committee meeting and talk to the History Committee about how you actually move from all the planning, writing stages into creating a final book and there was a lot of confusion about how they were going to actually, who was going to be the publisher, how you're going to put the whole thing together. And I gave them a lot of advice, <laughs> thinking I was just giving advice. And uh, I basically recommended that they get one person to be an editor and take charge of the whole project and, and whip everybody into shape. And, Lo and behold, Eric came back to me a week later and said, we really need you to do it. I thought there'd be somebody else in town that might be good at doing it, but Eric persuaded me to try it out. And I uh, was pretty skeptical at first because I had, I had a lot of other projects of my own I wanted to work on. And I didn't see how I was even going to find the time. But the, the town of Brookline offered to pay me for the editing work, and uh, they were all very persuasive, and I started doing it, and uh, I, I got to really like it, and uh, it was just a lot of fun to do the research and find out more about the town and the, have the contacts with the other people on the committee that were working in the same direction. When I was diagnosed with the ALS in 2015, I came really close to cutting off the whole project because I didn't know how I could uh, do the other book projects I wanted to do and do this too, the history too. Uh, and I came really close to throwing in the towel on it, but I thought I'll just give it a try. And then the more, I, you know, once I really devoted myself to it, uh, 
I just it became a passion and I really enjoyed the work like I said and I learned a lot and uh, it was just a great thing for me to do but it turned into an 832 page book and we had never pictured it being that big so it was a major uh, major achievement I would say on the part of everybody on the history committee that did the writing and and uh, the whole thing what kind of history book is it well it's not your typical academic uh town history it's not dry it's very fun and entertaining to read we we loaded it up with anecdotes and humorous stories and just poignant stories and all kinds of uh, uh, we get the history in you get the facts you get the people that did uh, were on what boards at what time and you get the um, basic information about the town but uh, you just get a whole lot more than that and uh, I think I said on the dust jacket it's like sitting uh, with an avuncular old-timer in front of the village store watching the traffic go by while you shoot the breeze it's just a lot of fun I think and uh, I tried to step back from just slavishly trying to report everything that happened and get a little distance from it it looked I I almost thought uh, or I I I used as the model of the ideal reader someone from out of town who knew nothing about Brookline but would still be interested and entertained by it just because there's so many uh, well, there's two reasons they would be entertained. One is there's a lot of really interesting Brookline history. The old Speedway, for example, or the Ice House or the Skeeto, which was one of the first in the country. Uh, those stories are just interesting. But the other reason people would be uh, interested, I thought, is uh, it's pretty... Uh, much the story of Brookline follows the story of so many other New England towns and you could be from almost any New England town and pick up our history and enjoy it I think because you'll it'll bring to mind stuff that happened in your own town and the similarities and the differences but uh, so I try to make it a little more universal as opposed to just specific to Brookline, but it's full of the specifics too. If my math is right, you've been uh, in Brookline with, I'm sure, some short interruptions for about 68 years. How, how'd I do? Oh my God, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, when you put it that way, that's scary. But I, I lived out in Oregon for a while when I went to school out there and then I lived out there for a little while and then I traveled and then I came back to Brookline what's what was it like being a kid in Brookline in the, the 50s 60s it was really a great town to live in and it was 
so different in so many ways because you know it was the days before iPhones and computers and and even video games and it wasn't pre-TV but the TVs were pretty primitive when I was growing up in the 50s and uh, so we spent a lot of time outdoors it was just the thing you did you came home from school you shucked off your school clothes and changed and ran right out as fast as you could to meet the other kids and go get into trouble so who were your uh peers that you recall this point well the shed family lived up on steve hill, hill road and uh halfway up it and so that was right around the corner from our house at the bottom of old milford road and they were a big family that was and my best friend was david shed who was my age but they were a whole bunch of kids in that family and they were wild and they jumped out of the top of their barn and off cliffs in the woods and stuff they were getting broken bones all the time but they were they were a fun family to hang out with and we just knew the woods of brookline like the back of our hands and we could go anywhere and we did so yeah i grew up with uh peter kroll and frank ward uh david young uh, brenda shattuck who i had a crush on sixth grade but never got anywhere with that uh yeah that was the group were there any particular characters in town, probably not your peers, who were memorable to you at this point? Uh, well, when we were kids, people used to come to the door to deliver the milk, to pick up the garbage, to deliver the groceries from the store. And you got to know all of them. If, uh, people just dropped in at any time of day uh, nobody ever called ahead or anything they just came and you kind of you were very close to all your neighbors and uh, charlotte wright the town librarian would stop in all hours of the day to help us with stuff she was a special family friend who lived right up the road and, and a couple houses up if my mother needed help babysitting she'd hang a white towel in the window charlotte would see it and come right down but uh all these people would just show up some of them were real characters and uh i do remember uh you've i'm sure you've heard this story and we tell it in the brookline history uh this guy i think his name was john elliott uh he just drove this old beat-up truck that was so bad it would hardly go any place and it was all held together with tape and glue and paste and whatever uh, wire and uh one time he came to the house and he did his thing and then he was trying to leave it was mud season in the spring and we just heard this, this and it was like tires spinning and him going nowhere he was trying to back out of our driveway 
but one of his back fenders was so loose every time he started to back up the thing flopped right under the tire so the tire was spinning inside fender and after a whole long time of listening to that my father went out he grabbed a piece of wire attached to the fender and he held it up while john elliott backed out my father walked out to the road holding up the fender and then he let it go and coffee drove uh I think he's the same guy who chucked up his car with a block of ice on Making House Hill Road and then shot the breeze too long with Miriam Jepson or somebody and he came back out and his truck was down the bottom of the hill. Uh, uh, were, yeah, there were a lot of a lot of characters, but not they were already kind of fading by the time I was a kid. Things were getting more homogenized, and I mean, before my day, there were even more characters. Your mom was so involved in the town. Um, I assume that uh, you were conscious of uh, the powers that be, the politics, the, yeah. the crusades among the people. Yeah. Um, who, who were the, when you were young, uh, before you went off to college, who were the movers and shakers in town? Well, of course, the Firewells were always big movers and shakers. They, they, they uh, did so much for the town over the years and were involved in many different aspects of the town. Uh, and... We didn't, my mother did not always see eye to eye with them on what they were doing, but they were friends. And uh, I would say through uh, most of my mother's political career, well, by political career, I mean Brookline, she started what her politics in Brookline. She did, she was on virtually every commission and committee board that there was in Brookline over the years and uh and then she branched out into the state politics and was in the legislature but she talks a lot about how she used to talk a lot about how uh things were so different in those days in the new hampshire legislature people would go in and squabble over the issues and have huge differences between their points of view and totally still remain friends. They just didn't, didn't occur to them not to still be friends. And I think the same was true in town politics, you know. The old guys would go in and scream at each other at town meeting, and then walk across the street to town meeting dinner and best of friends. Uh, so it seems to me like the really tense stuff, like the bell ringer stuff, that came later and that was part of a huge the town was growing so fast and having such growing pains and changing so fast and as the population just grew too fast and we had to switch to a more professional police department and we had to make rules and we had to pass zoning laws and all of this stuff as a result of how fast the town was growing 
Well, some people resisted that, and some people were in favor of that to help the town grow in an orderly way. Things got more nasty, I'd say, much later after. But back when I was a kid, you had arguments, but everybody loved everybody. It was just a good feeling in town. Yeah, you might be really angry with someone for that old so-and-so for a couple of days, but it wasn't uh, long-time grudges or... Uh, yeah, so, so I, as someone who had grown up in Brookline, I was shocked by the whole controversy surrounding the, the bell ringers because uh, it just um, it, it totally was right on both sides. There were a bunch of old timers who loved the traditions of ringing the bell, and uh, and then there were newcomers that didn't understand the traditions, particularly maybe the members of a uh, police department that weren't from town originally. You know, why would they understand it? And uh, I could see the reasons for the clashes and the problems, but I could not understand the depth of uh, vitriol that came out of it all. That that really pretty surprised me. I didn't understand that. I, I think in retrospect, I kind of understand it. And we have a good essay on it in the New History. It was all about the growing pains of the town. It just, uh, you know, when, you, when a place changes radically quickly, you're bound to have stuff like that happen. And it's not all that surprising that it did, given how rapid the growth was. And I'm just as, like, in my own way, I'm probably as conservative as any of the old-timers. I love the old way of doing things and the freedom and the, you know, the, the liberty to just do, do your own thing your own way. I mean, that was one of the great things about this town. And But I also recognize that with growth and change and new people coming in, if you don't do anything to regulate it, or to, to try to uh, have a vision of how you want your town to go and grow, then you're just going to get into big trouble, like a lot of towns have around here. There's towns that didn't have as much foresight as Brookline in terms of planning and conservation that are pretty much a mess now, if you ask me. Like Merrimack, or whatever. You know, you know it's just... Uncontrolled growth is worse than just sitting back and, I mean, it, it just, you just have to find a middle ground with this stuff. You can't dig in your heels and say it's always going to be the same as it was when I was a kid. I wish it were, I really wish it were, because it was a great town that way. But now it has other great things that we did not have when we were kids. And we had no recreational facilities and stuff. We made our own ball fields and our own places to play.
My impression is that the, the zoning was a, a, a point of conflict between the old and the new. Yeah, definitely. And my impression is that uh, Florence Palmer is somebody who was a bit of a pioneer in that fight. Yes, she was. She and Paula Struckman published the uh, comments magazine, a little newsletter thing that uh, was part of the Build a Better Brookline uh, Association. And they advocated for planning and zoning. And I think uh, Florence was maybe a little strident and abrasive in her way, which didn't help, but she also really pioneered a lot of the ideas and it got the town thinking about how to do some pl good planning. So, uh, I think the feelings well, are pretty strong about that. Well, they were at the time. I don't know. Uh, I'm sitting up here on my hill most of the time now. And I'm not really involved in town politics now, uh, so I don't I don't exactly know how people feel about different issues. But I would say that some of the people that were adamantly opposed to any kind of zoning or conservation effort, probably, I should put words in their mouth, but I would say that at least some of them look back now and say, hey, that was a smart thing to do. Because we had to. I mean, it was no choice. You had to you had to take control of your own town. What do you recall about uh, the conservation initiative in town? Well, I was very involved in that. Uh, so... I believe there had been conservation commissions forever in Brookline, and they were more or less active, and sometimes they did a lot of good stuff. I know Miriam Jepson and Ray Pearson were involved for many years, and lots of others. But when I got involved, it had by that time become more or less dormant. They weren't doing anything. And I remember you coming to me and saying, hey, Sid, How'd you like to get involved in this conservation commission stuff for the town? And I, uh, I thought, well, yeah, I guess I do want to get involved in that. And uh, one of our first, uh, so I was on the commission for a lot of years and chairman for several times. And I think one of our first big uh, things was when they wanted to turned the whole of Route 13 into industrial commercial. And uh, we wanted to protect the nice parts of it, not just blanket, have a strip down both sides called industrial commercial, uh, but use, but do it more wisely. And I believe that was our first actual little, uh, skirmish on the conservation front which we we won <laughs> i think they didn't do that and so that was nice because then it developed in a much more organic way it didn't they didn't just have this big wide strip uh so then we got involved in uh 
trying to buy up conservation land, and that was compared to what's happened. Uh, it was very. Uh, uh, well, I, you would say feeble at first. I mean, it was just little pieces, little parcels of land here and there. But we sort of developed a philosophy uh, and and tried to sell it to people in town about it was worthwhile to buy up pieces of land. I mean, the argument was if you take pieces of land and put them into conservation, then they're not going to be part of the tax base anymore, and you're going to lose money on taxes but the counter argument to that was when you when you take a piece of land and develop it and build houses on it then you get school children in the houses and then the fire department has to serve the new neighborhood and the police and so you're increasing the taxes and it's obvious if you look at little towns versus big towns uh, tiny little towns still complain about their taxes but they are so low compared to the bigger towns so that was one of our issues and that took a lot of time and there was some real entrenched uh opposition to us uh doing that and then eventually taking the current use land use change tax and putting that into a fund to buy conservation land. And that took a lot of years. And then, uh, then later, long after I was off the Conservation Commission, the, the land purchasing really took off. And I think the town's done a wonderful job at conserving land. And then our other big thing was the wetlands ordinance, which we studied other towns. And we made a lot of mistakes at first trying to because we didn't totally understand all the issues and we created something that was too complicated for people to understand. Uh, so that was rejected at least once, maybe more, than, but that finally was enacted as well. So I would say overall, you know, right down to the present, conservation has been a real success story in Brookline. I'm really pleased with what's happened, and there may be some people that don't like it, but uh, when you live in a place and you grow up there, you, you totally take it for granted. So, I mean, for years I took the town for granted, thinking, well, this is my town, it's, why do we have to have rules and regulations about how to keep it like this? This is beautiful, just like it is. And, uh, you don't think anything bad's going to happen to it. You, you think you've lived with it your whole life. It's always been there. You think it's always going to be there. But then new people that move into town, they see it. They see the value of it, the value of protecting it. So it's uh, I think that's a real interesting dynamic because you'd think it would be the cold tyrants who would want to protect it the most and the newcomers who take, who take it for granted, but it's often just the opposite it's all a complicated thing that goes deeply into people's feelings and, and attachments and so on and nobody's got the right solution everybody's right in their own way but you have to cash things 
these things out as a community and come to a consensus about the right way to go.